Good morning. It's Sunday, December the 1st, 2019. This is show number 110. All right, here we go. And good evening, good morning, welcome, welcome to the 110th show, coming to you from One Independent Drive in downtown Jacksonville. How are you? (laughs) Uh, How's it going? Hopefully you got uh, your fill of all of the gluttonous overindulgent excessive food that uh, people do uh, each year around the Thanksgiving holiday and of course if you're not in the United States well uh, we wanted to extend our greetings and salutations to you as well my name is Gummo and uh, as I said uh, we've changed locations but not uh, the spirit Uh, Coming to you here from sunny, warm Florida. Overlooking the river here. Uh, It's uh, in the... I tried to get in the tallest building in in, uh, the city. Uh, And uh, there was two options. There were... Excuse me. There were two options. There was the... In the Wells Fargo building. uh, A.K.A. It's called the Independent Life Building what I call it. It's the big blue building that you see uh, on the landscape uh, images of downtown Jacksonville. It's the uh, blue building that faces the river. It says Wells Fargo on it. That's where we are at. Uh, There was another option. uh, It was right behind us. uh, It's the old Barnett Tower. And I actually like that building better. I wanted to set up a studio studio, uh, over there. Uh, but uh, it's just uh, at this point, it's not uh, it's not a viable option, uh, and so I'm working on that. Uh, and actually, you know, while I continue to work on that, though, I will enjoy the view here. Uh, it's just one of those things. I uh, yeah, I'm trying to. I don't know. It's whatever. Uh, hopefully, things are going well with you. As I said, uh, it's it is good uh, to be back. Uh, you know, we had a little crunch time. Uh, I was doing a lot of traveling uh, for the past couple of weeks and still kind of uh, still kind of in stuck state of uh, travel. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, over uh, my travel. I need to get to a travel oasis quick one of these days. And so I'll continue to work in that process. But uh, nevertheless, it's uh, it's nice and uh, cloudy today, uh, 81 degrees. And um, I don't know. It's uh, it's. <laughs> 
although the sun is not shining it's warm and uh that's uh the that's the tactic that i'm i'm enjoying finally uh and should be in the middle of uh november whereas uh for you for the past what 15 years i've been freezing every winter uh and so uh, a welcome a welcome change indeed for uh, for me and uh definitely overdue and so it's good to uh finally be home uh with that said uh i just wanted to uh i wanted to catch up on the news but uh yeah, crash definitely has advised me that uh, we should continue on with the uh, consistency consistency is key theme and so i couldn't agree more and so with that said uh we are going to run a couple uh a couple uh, interesting uh, talks this evening for you, and hopefully that uh, you will enjoy both of them. Uh, during the um, <clears throat> between the talks, I'll come back and uh, ramble for a moment or two, and then uh, you know say something like uh, you know you could pause it or something, uh, and then you can uh, check out the second talk as well. So uh, let's get it off the uh, ground. This is from the recent DefCon 27 Crypto and Privacy Village. Uh, this is Cat Murdoch, Black Mirror. You are your own privacy nightmare. All right, everybody, let's kick this off. Uh, this time we're going to do a black hat style introduction for our next speaker. So, laser beams, laser beams, unsa, 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 unsa. everybody get ready for the best, amazing, most cyber talk ever. Laser beams, laser beams, laser beams. Pew, 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 pew. Please welcome Cat Murdoch presenting Black Mirror. You are your own worst privacy nightmare. I thought I told you to set a low bar, man. Low bar. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you guys so much for coming out. Uh, as you now know, you are sitting in Black Mirror. You are your own worst privacy nightmare. Uh, we're going to go through this in like a bit of a narrative way. It's involving a lot of story points to hopefully wrap up and bring us all to the main goal of the talk, which is just recognizing the, um, the areas of our life where privacy is leaking that we may not realize exist at all. So first, hello, I'm Kat Murdoch. Uh, for the past few years, I've worked on red teams doing social engineering and penetration testing. Uh, this talk draws on those experiences uh, pretty heavily. Um, I am constantly curious. I'm really interested in where um, our actions leave us most vulnerable. In my spare time, I like to threat model my life. My husband will probably attest to this. Um, <laughs> I like to make sure that we have plans like A through Z sorted out. And so I have to know, you know, where are all of our vulnerabilities? Um, so I really try and take our professional curiosities in the community and apply them to our lives. Um, also really like my dog. I currently work as a security analyst on GuidePoint's threat and attack simulation team. Um, Woo, go, go team. I don't know if anybody's here. They were very supportive of me. I'm very grateful for that. Um, so the goal of this is to recognize the vulnerabilities that are created in our lives by using multiple services. Uh, we're going to do a nice little like Black Mirror Netflix theme, but we're going to draw this out into other areas of our lives as well. Uh, I'm going to talk about some tips for mitigating these issues and these vulnerabilities in your life. And hopefully we'll learn through some entertaining stories um, and a lot of research that I put into this specific uh, talk here. So it's going to involve a little bit of a hard, deep look at our current reality and how we are impacting our own lives and how our family members are impacting our own lives. I know personally, like, um, I have a stepdaughter and she 
is, you know, growing up in this technologically really advanced world, and it's really challenging sometimes to break down these privacy points for her and proper security as she is essentially learning how to craft her own digital image. It's really hard sometimes to thoroughly underscore how our own actions and your own actions online um, and just continuing to live your life can really like affect you on some deep levels. So those interactions with her have gotten me thinking a lot about how can these lessons and how can looking at privacy and our own vulnerabilities from different angles really be mitigated and affect, and affect positive change in our lives. As many people in this room probably know, um, I guess like, if you work in privacy, can you raise your hand? Woo, thanks guys. Um, so I want to be really clear throughout this that I am so grateful to all privacy professionals. Um, they advocate for policies that help us, and they do this within the confines of their companies, and their companies trying to make money, and continuing to be the commercial giants or little contributors that they are. Um, and I'm so grateful for everything they try to do and everything that they want to do. Um, those things typically are, you know, privacy professionals, their focal points are within their own company and their own services. And we're going to explore kind of where those, those Lexus, like lexicons of control end, and therefore what happens on the edge where one person's privacy policy, like one group's privacy policy may be very robust. Um, but what happens when those services start commingling with other services? Um, and in, you know, and then in theory, end users get some choice over their own privacy. But at least, you know, and in this room, I'm certain that so many people are very aware of how their actions impact their privacy and how their actions impact their own vulnerabilities. But when we go home and we're talking to people, our friends who don't work in the industry, when we're talking to our family members, like how do we translate these lessons? And especially in a world where companies say like, oh, well, end users had choices. They're allowed to opt out. We gave them X, Y, Z, and they're making these choices. But, you know, really like, do they? Um, there are a lot of things, especially for the lay person, that are extremely overwhelming from a privacy perspective. Um, you know, they can have a lack of knowledge. They don't understand where to look. They can have, you know, there are varying degrees of proficiency with technology and with applications. Um, they could just be, you know, have other priorities. Like, I'll be the first to own. Sometimes I know the right way to do something, and I'm like, I don't have time to spin up a burner email to register for this cocktail party for Black Hat. I'm just going to use this one because, like, this, the idea of doing this right now in the midst of my very busy work schedule is overwhelming to me. So that's coming from somebody who does this professionally. Maybe you guys are better than me and you've never slipped up. But <laughs> I know that, you know, where my family and friends are concerned, they just have, we are all extremely busy and the world throws tons of things our way. So we have to be a little bit in, in, um, empathetic to that. And then occasionally there are really bad privacy policies or they don't cover, occasionally, I'm going to be generous because I really, really appreciate the effort that privacy policies have. Um, but so even though they have this idea of choice and we can say like, oh, the end user can prepare themselves, like, do they actually have that ownership over their own privacy? And I would posit that there are so many layers to this, it's almost impossible to see for anyone where all of the risk could come from. So let's start off talking about, like, 
what are some common services people use in their day-to-day -day life? Not from a business perspective, like, but each individual. Um, you guys are welcome to shout at me. Um, what are some things that we use every single day that our services other vendors provide? Email? Instagram? Social media in general? Netflix? Thanks. APIs, yes. Amazon, instant messaging. Cell phones, medicine. So there's so many different services that impact our lives on the day to day. Namely, banking, we all need phone and internet, I think I heard somebody say that. Um, subscription media, social media, instant ordering, be that food or Amazon. I personally hate stores, so I'm a big fan. <laughs> and media and enjoyment. So these are all services that most adults in this room, out in the world, are using very regularly and so each of these disparate companies disparate services they all have their own terms of service they all have their own privacy policies but do they think about all the other privacy policies that they may interact with and that's often not the case unfortunately so we're going to focus in on two specifically we're going to look at banking which is regulated they're very compliance driven and subscription where their policies often have to protect or work around what their user data is being used for um you know can we resell this how do we obfuscate it how do we aggregate it how do we not make how do we make sure that people are not identified based on their um you know, based on their watching profiles or their cookies etc cetera, etc cetera. um so in these two specific things it's so important because like outside of I think Michael Basil maybe, I'd say everybody in this room probably has at least one bank account in their actual name because otherwise we wouldn't get paid. <laughs> and so that is something that we're not, like we cannot avoid that at this point in the game. Um, and it kind of, so, and then 60% of the adult population pays for subscription services where like Netflix, like Spotify, like, um, you know, HBO Now, what have you, 60% of the adult population is paying for that. And then there are clearly, you know, like the 30 to 35% of the population that is just using one of those 60% accounts <laughs> in some capacity or another. So these two things are very pervasive. And maybe, you know, maybe people are like, oh, I'm never going to give my information to media. I don't have a subscription account. That's great, you do you, but this is more of an analogy towards the broader implications of using multiple services to just run our lives, which on a basic you know, financial connectivity perspective is unavoidable. We are all using services, we're all using vendors in our day-to-day -day lives. So, a question for everyone. What if you need to verify your identity with your financial institution? What do you need? Social security numbers? Sometimes your driver's license? Sometimes the debit card number or debit card itself? Address? Secret questions? Yeah, so all of these are ways that your bank may try and verify your financial information. Um, and this is not targeting one specific bank. I will backtrack to a little bit of my background. I've worked in finance for the past six years. I started my security career um, writing policies for essentially like merchant banks and investment banks. So I got to see a lot of like how the policies were written from that side. And then as a social engineer and penetration tester, I have worked 
with a lot of banks to see if we can circumvent their controls and access accounts or access aspects of the infrastructure that we shouldn't have, shouldn't be able to see. Um, so a lot of this came out of those very real experiences. So no two financial institutions may have the exact same, um, exact same verification questions or verification policies. But in my experience with a number of major providers, this is something that does affect many of them um, in this about to be very specific way. So what you need to verify, credit card number, social security number, account numbers, other stuff, those were all great ideas. But what happens if you're on the road? What happens if you don't have your account number memorized? What happens if you forget your social or you're in a really crowded area and you don't want to say it? How does your financial institution then verify who you are? What? They get sent you an email potentially? Pin number potentially? They what? Yeah, they'll make sure, and the, if you call in, they'll make sure that that primary number matches the number on the account. Which, okay, these are interesting. Other places will often verify with knowledge of the account itself. Um, many banks, many financial institutions will assume that because you understand what is happening within the account, because you have a really firm understanding of the current balance, the most recent charges, et cetera, your date of birth, your address, your phone number, because you know everything there is to know about the account except for the number, many financial institutions will say, okay, that's cool. This is your account. You do this. So where does this meet Netflix? So what are the different defining qualities of subscription services? There are a couple of things here that all subscription services rely on. Preferences, did somebody say credit card? Recurring. recurring payments. And those recurring payments are of a publicly knowledge, like a, a, they are publicly known. You know exactly how much you're paying for Netflix every month. You know, maybe you do the family plan or whatever for Spotify, maybe you do the singular plan, but there are not very many iterations of these monthly services pricings, which immediately, so it's not necessarily your bank's job to think about the implications of verifying with something like a recent charge. But if we're all paying $9.99 every single month, and we can kind of figure out what time a month that charge occurs, any person who can figure out, figure out what service you use and when it renews could know a piece of information that could get into your bank account. And then how might we find out who uses these things? People love to talk about their subscription services. They love to talk about the music they like. They love to talk about the shows they like. And this is top quality open source intelligence, also known as OSINT. And it's everywhere. So one year of Netflix, one year Netflix subscription on 612, what day every month are they paying 9.99 to Netflix? Around the 12th. Got a Netflix subscription again. Time to re-up my HBO Now subscription. The key to successful campaign. Everyone around, you know, big TV shows come out, Big Little Lies, Game of Thrones. These service, these service providers have an influx of tons of people. So now there are, you know, millions, hundreds of thousands 
of targets that we know probably signed up around these very popular releases. So we can slowly accrue all of this information about somebody's essentially like how we might be able to get into their bank account if we can figure out what bank account that is. And we can use this public knowledge of monthly subscription services to gain access to those accounts. I have done this personally into multiple bank accounts at multiple financial institutions. Um, it works really well. I personally kind of hate when people stand up and are like, I did this thing, just trust me. So, <laughs> as one does, I, um, <laughs> I opened up a special bank account for the sake of this presentation. Um, disclaimer, <laughs> I am not sure that this is an advisable move on anyone's part, and I need you to be very clear, I am not telling anyone to go out in the world and start a bank account to test their own security controls. I don't think it's illegal. I couldn't find anything that said it was wrong, but I don't necessarily advocate it. <laughs> so we're going to go on a little journey. I wanted to see if I could, using my own information, I opened a bank account using OSINTable information about myself, unfortunately, um, and I wanted to see if I could gain access to that account through improper verification methods. It was, a it was like pleasantly, slightly more challenging than I had orig originally planned on. Um, <laughs> But I didn't want to betray any like employers or clients, so this seemed like the safest way to prove the point um, without you know stepping on anyone's toes or making anyone any anyone particularly alarmed. I will say, yes, we can find subscription information online. We can find other OSINT online about the the account holders. We can find their birthday. If they haven't moved around a lot, we can probably figure out what area they open the account in. Uh, we may be able to find their social. Some states still release that on like tax liens, which is just batty to me. Um, <laughs> so if you live in those states, maybe go make sure that on the publicly disclosed tax liens, your social security number is not in the top corner, because often they will only verify with the last four. So some, if not all of these things are ostensible. I tried to keep this like very, very basic. Um, and I did put some subscription services on this account for the sake of this talk. Thankfully, we had a lot of heads up. Um, so it's a multi-pronged attack. You do a setup call to make sure that you verify the most recent charge, and you're like, oh, I don't really know a lot of information, but I just got this like weird thing happen on my phone. Can I make sure my Spotify payment went through? Can I make sure my YouTube Red Premium, whatever it is, went through? So we're going to listen to a setup call where I call just to get information on the account to further my attack vector on my next step. So here we go. Thank you for calling. My name is Nat. Please have your first and last name. Please talk to how to pay from your account. Hi. I just speak to And how may I speak to you, um, so I am traveling right now, I'm just like really crazy, so I don't think I had like my account number and stuff at the beginning. Um, I just got one of those weird text messages for a charge and I wasn't familiar with the vendor. I was wondering if you could like confirm what the most recent charge on my account is. Okay, I can definitely go ahead and confirm what the most recent charge is on your account. May you please just verify your full okay. address, including your state, city, and zip code? Uh, yeah. I'm not giving you my actual bank account, guys. My address. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. In just one moment, please, while I access the account. And what was the amount of that charge? Um, I don't, it was like over, it was like a pretty, I think it was like a pretty significant one, but it might be like a monthly thing. I don't, okay, I wanted to just part. verify like what it is. Alright, so it was for the 
Is it that one? Yep, that's okay. what it does. What is that? Just to throw it out there. Instead, she never had me verify it. I just stumbled my way through confirming what the amount was, and she was like, oh, was it this one? I'm sure like, yeah, that seems right. That seems great. Do you see like the whole vendor name? It says, that is a monthly thing. Okay, cool. That is. Okay, okay, that makes me feel better. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome that you have Oh, and actually, days. while I have you, while I have you, could you just verify, what is my account balance right now? I feel like with, between like that charge and then like, I think I got paid recently too, so I just want to verify. Okay, so your balance is. Okay, okay, awesome. Okay, that's good then. All right, okay. thank you so much. I appreciate you. You're welcome. You have a great day and thank you for calling. So now I have. I know I, you know, if this was not my account, I would have verified I had the right address because it went through. I, you know, gave her the proper name and then she gave me my one ask. Can I just confirm this weird text message I got? Everyone gets the six digit text messages. And finally at the end, when she was all bought in, she'd already helped me. She felt super comfy in this interaction. I was like, oh, can you also tell me the account balance? Like I would like to know this exact other thing about the account. So now I have all of this great information to call a different teller because banks are giant places with multiple people and see if I can take it to the next level. I will say, shout out to that bank. Oh, I um, did get shut down once, but I want to share it with you because in the process of getting shut down, one of the biggest things that I see in all of these cases of services leaking little bits of information and, you know, leaking your privacy just a bit on the fringes is that they, a lot of times humans don't realize the value of helpful information. Humans typically are trying to be helpful, especially if you're polite, if you're amenable, and they are all in for, um, for trying to be as helpful as possible within the confines of what they believe they're allowed to do. So we're going to start with the shutdown because it does happen, but there was a really valuable little tidbit thrown in while he was being like, nah, bro, I can't do that. As far as like getting the account number um, without having to go to a branch, it would be through the mobile app. Or um, I don't think I remember my password right now. You like you can't help me. Like I'm pretty sure. I can like, help I can you tell log you into the, last the account. Should have been. Got you. Got you. Um, yeah, just you know, I get I get in a lot of trouble if I do that. Um, but I can I can help you get into your uh, mobile account and then help you find it. Most definitely, Miss Murdoch. Um, That's what I can do. We can try that. Uh, let's see if I can like multitask that one. So that um, if you could log in or if you need help logging, I can help you with that most definitely. Uh, what were you saying the, the handle was? Uh, the user ID. Uh, Okay. Um, oh shoot, you know what the pro I don't think I can do this while I'm on the phone. Are you with Sprint? Yeah. So disclaimer, I'm not with Sprint and I actually didn't know that Sprint was the only character to not let you multitask now, but now I do. Um, <laughs> but more importantly, he's sitting there telling me like, oh, I can only help you log into the mobile app. I can only help you do this. Like I can't tell you the account number on the phone. But in the process, I never gave him my user ID. I never requested that from him and he offers it up. I did request it at the end and he just offers it up to be helpful to log into the mobile app. So now as the attacker, I have 
username, I may not have the password, but there are a variety of ways, some of which we'll touch on a bit later, to get that password once you already have the account access. You could probably find the email address associated with the account online as well, and you can slowly build this robust profile using the knowledge of other services and what um, the other services and what you learn on the phone calls to volley this into a much bigger attack. So then I called back because you can always get a sympathetic person. Um, the noise in the background is a track of airport sounds. <laughs> so if you need like a compelling phone pretext, I recommend you turn to YouTube. There are crying baby sounds or rent, I don't know, maybe you have a baby you can just use organically. Um, <laughs> you have a lot of airport, a lot of like loud keyboard clicks. So that really can seal it in. Um, it can really help other people be empathetic to your plight as you're going to like storming to the next place. So I entered into this next compromise. I also did this with the shutdown saying that like my mortgage payment had failed and I needed some help to make sure that I could pay. I'm on the road, you know, like you know how bad it is if you miss your mortgage payment. Like apparently it happened last month too. So I really need to figure this out right now. As far as like getting at the account. Without having to. May I have the first and last name on our valued customer as it's on your account, please? Yeah, uh, my name is Murdoch. You know what's really funny is that's actually my cousin's name. Good afternoon. Shout out to Whitney Merrill, uh, Whitney Maxwell. She's in the room. She did that exact line on her winning SECTF calls last year. So I was like, I'm going to give her a little shout out. Um, saying that you know somebody with the same name as an instant rapport builder. It invites them into your tribe. And now they feel like they have this connection with you. So I'm all like, oh, yeah, I know that person. I have somebody with a similar name. Um, pro tip, if you do this, don't concatenate it to a nickname. I recently, they were like, oh, hey, my name's Ginger. And I was like, my cousin's name is Ginger, but she goes by Ginny. And she was like, oh. And I was like, I did not realize <laughs> that this was like stepping on some toes, my bad. <laughs> so anyway, back to this. Welcome to... I have the first and last name on our valued customer. Is it on your account, please? Yeah, uh, my name is... Murdoch. You know what's really funny is that's actually my cousin's name. That is funny. It's an unusual name. Great. How may I help you today? Um, so I'm in a little bit of a bind. I'm so sorry for like the background noise. I'm actually traveling today. Um, so I thought that I had my mortgage that's like auto pay, but now I'm being told by my mortgage provider that my payment didn't go through. Um, and that they need to verify the account information. And so I don't have access to my account number off the top of my head. Um, I was hoping that maybe you guys could help me get, get, verify what my account number is. Mm, I can go ahead and check our options over the phone. Can I confirm the address on the account? Uh, yes, ma'am. It is. So we're getting a lot of the same questions. Like these are things I already know the right answers to. I'm like, heck yeah, I tested this. Great, Miss Murdoch. And what are the last four digits of your social security number, ma'am? Um, so I am not comfortable getting that out right now because I'm surrounded by so many people. Um, is there some other way we can go about this? Mm, okay. Let me see. Um, 
I can ask you three other questions on the account. They'll be random. Hold on. Um, before I do that, what is your birthday, Miss Murdoch? Um, it is What is the current balance on your account, ma'am? Um, I think it's like, I think it's like. You think or you know? I need the, I need the exact amount, ma'am. Um, okay, as of, as of earlier, it was. She thinks I'm just as scattered as I pretended to be. <laughs> okay, and what was the last charge on the account? Um, oh, that's easy. I just saw that, like, my monthly, um, that would have been. Great. And finally, what city and state was the account opened in? Uh, it would have it been. Thank you so much, Ms. Murdoch. The number on your account is... Literally every time this happens, my blood runs cold and I have to go take like a 15-minute walk. Um, yeah, thank you. Hopefully I can just go ahead and get this paid and like it won't be an issue while I'm on the road. Um, thank you so much. Of course, is there anything else I can help you with today? Um, no, that should, that should probably be it. I appreciate the time. Thank you for being a valued customer. Have a good afternoon. So suddenly, because we know all about these other pieces of information in my life, whether it be, you know, you found some, I don't know, voter records are a super helpful place for OSINT. That's another service that we use if we want to vote. We have to give them our information. You can find birthdays, you can find locations, you can find addresses through that. We know our monthly service providers. That is... Uh, we, we've already discussed, you know, we know exactly how much our Netflix is. We know probably how much the Spotify is. And though this can be done in just the three quick calls or two quick calls that you guys listen to, you know, really savvy and committed attackers will keep calling back until they get, like, I've been in situations where I don't have the answer to some of the random questions, and so I have to call back and be like, okay, well, let's try this again. Uh, maybe I don't know your horse's name. Like, <laughs> or maybe I do, depending on your Instagram use. Um, but so you have these, all of these like very, very vulnerable pieces from different service providers that they may or may not realize exist, and quite frankly, it's not your bank's fault that you use Netflix. It's not Netflix's fault that you charge that to the bank, but it's incumbent to us as the users to pay attention to these things, to understand that they're happening, and put our critical thinking hats on on where could the gaps between these services that we use exist and how can we fix them. Um, oh, stop. So this is not a one-off. This happens to other services we use as well. So it's not just banks and subscriptions. It's, you know, that's a really fun one to use in the context of like, I can actually pull this off as a case study for a talk. Um, but it also happens for like, happens with phone porting scams, which is essentially you call the Verizon or AT&T, which you can find very easily on like freecarrierlookup.com, where, who owns this number? 
And then you call them and you tell them there are oftentimes very, very, very few security controls on asking for your calls to be forwarded. Maybe you're going out of the country and you're not bringing your phone. Maybe you're coming to Black Hat and you don't want to bring your phone. You call them and you ask, hey, for this week, could I just have all my calls forwarded to this new number? And they're generally like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, but what else do your phone calls do? What else do your phone calls are they used for? If you use Outlook, you can oftentimes do your two-factor with the phone call. And they'll call you and they'll tell you, like, oh, here's the, you know, here's the code. It is one, 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 one. And you're like, oh, man. So now suddenly these things start to snowball. And again, it's maybe a little bit the phone carrier's fault. Like, they should not make that so easy. But <laughs> they're not really thinking about your phone number and calls to your phone number being used for multi-factor authentication. Should they be? Maybe. Do they? No. Should we? Absolutely. Um, the other one is like all text messages, all network carriers use the same SS7 um, network to send text messages over. It's relatively easy to intercept. There are a lot of vulnerabilities that affect text messaging. So now your two-factor authentication via your text message, which I'm, I'm positive many people in the room know is not like the preferred method. You should definitely go with token-based authentication methods when possible, but not all vendors allow that. Not all financial institutions allow that. They're not like, yeah, sure, go Duo, go use Authy. They're like, we can either call you or we'll text you. And that's it. Or we'll email you. And all of these have like major problems with them occasionally. So this intersection between different services, be it Netflix and Black Mirror, be it, um, be it your bank account, whatever, these intersections are like where we are going to lose our money, where we are going to get into desperate times. This has happened with a ton of people with Coinbase, um, Bitcoin wallets, like cryptocurrency is a huge target for, S uh, for SS7 interception and text message interception. And then once your Bitcoin wallet is gone, it's gone. There's no tracking that down. Um, so this is not a one-off. It affects almost all our services that commingle, especially telecom and banking providers and financial institutions. And another really great case study is in 2016, a group of children, basically, which I'm, there are brilliant teenagers. Um, there's a group of three 15 to 17 year olds who call themselves crackers with attitude. And they ha were a hacktivist group and their general messaging was that they wanted to free Palestine. To do this, they decided it'd be a great idea to hack a bunch of three letter agencies um, and also compromise the director, then director of the CIA, John Brennan's accounts. And they did this by using the lapses between um, between different services. So what they did first was they called Verizon, his telephone provider that they found out using free carrier lookup or something similar. So they called Verizon and they were like, hey, I've got to do some maintenance on John Brennan's account. Can you please confirm some account details for me? Including the last four of his, so of his Visa card, including his handle, all the information they could possibly get from Verizon, they got and then even if somebody at Verizon reported that some shady stuff happened to Brennan's account, what would Verizon have done and how would that have helped with any other vendor that they would then use this information with? There's really nothing. There's nothing that Verizon in this day and age could have done. So then they took all of that information, the last four of the account number, the birthday, the phone number, et cetera, and they went to his AOL account. 
and they logged into his AOL account. And in his AOL account was all of the information for when he got onboarded with the CIA, which quite frankly, again, don't know why people would do that. Um, <laughs> it's not ideal, but people do. Your loved ones may. And sometimes we're like in a moment of harriedness. You're like, I'm going to forward myself this email because I need it on the road or whatever. And suddenly you have something sitting there that really shouldn't be there, but it feels, you know, maybe right now it was okay. Um, so they overtook his AOL account. They locked him out of it, and they found all of his onboarding documents and leveraged them against him. The kids have since been arrested, but it's another, it's a great example of how we can use these different services to essentially do account takeovers, get extra information, and really compromise and mess with someone's life. And I don't want any of you or anyone I love or anyone I know to be one of those people who gets hosed because of this, like, very nebulous gray area between services. So recap. Remember that any service or provider you use is only responsible for their own privacy terms. And quite frankly, as we have seen, they don't always do that super well. <laughs> and so this leaves each individual to take care of their privacy themselves. If we look at something like the Equifax breach, that really underscores the necessity. Equifax is a service that adults did not say, I know what I want to do. I want to open an account with Equifax. <laughs> that was not how that happened. <laughs> and yeah, we all, you know, so many people were negatively affected from that breach. Um, so we have to remember that all of these things touch our lives, whether we're constantly thinking about them or not, whether or not we're watching Black Mirror every night or what, I, what have you. Grace and Frankie, it's great. Um, <laughs> but all of, the all of the other little bits of our lives that are being logged, that are being looked at, that are being used, those are entry points into our, our, our lives, our well-being, our financial happiness, and they should absolutely be considered in like your personal threat model and that of your family is to make sure that you're not John Brennan. He was the director of the CIA. Like he should have been a champion of professional like decorum and security and like this really hurt him. So, it, you know, any of us are vulnerable. I truly believe that every person in the whole world under the right circumstances could be socially engineered to give information that they didn't intend to give. And all of these wildcard people work at all of our vendors, and we are wildcards ourselves. Like, we don't necessarily know when something's going to go sideways. So trying to maintain that active, like, threat modeling mindset and constantly staying on top of what could go wrong when we have the time to think about that is extremely important to your longer-term well-being and that of your financial security and family's financial security. So, like, own your own privacy. Sure, most people in this room do a great job of that. But social, a social engineer's obsession with OSINT, open source intelligence, like relies on poor privacy hygiene from users often. It relies on those moments that you want to, that you're excited, and sometimes that's hard to contain. Um, but when you can't contain it, be very aware of what you're choosing to share with the world and who can see it. Um, so recognize where individual services privacy policies are supposed to cover you. Try and recognize how they're actually covering you and where they are not actually covering you. Um, and like your vulnerability is in the connection of these privacy policies or one of them. It is the most often overlooked in my experience. 
And then question your role, like the role in your own privacy. Question your role in your family's privacy. Recognize that the surface is always changing. The policies themselves are changing. How organizations conduct business is always changing. And how it affects you positively or negatively is always changing. Um, so make sure that you are owning your own privacy and, you know, try and do routine hygiene checks. Like pick a day every quarter or a day every month to say like, what have I signed up for? What is new? What might have been shared? Did somebody else share something about me? Um, oftentimes when there's information on it, like maybe your aunt, like Uncle Joe tagged you in a photo on Facebook and it was public. And then you can't go and untag that because Facebook's rules are ridiculous. And so everyone can go and find out where you were tagged. And now, you know, the world knows a little bit about yours and Joe's relationship. And that's not your fault, but it is very helpful to be able to explain to people why that might be a problem and why it might affect you or them negatively. So what to do? Observe and analyze your actions and those of your loved ones. Um, you know, like, I, one of my best friends was saving passwords in a truly nauseating way. We had to have a nice little sit down about sticky notes are not proper password management tools, whether they're on your computer or on your physical desktop. Like, no thank you. Um, don't share what subscription, subscription services you use. And I'm not saying don't share them with your mom or your sister or your brother or use your moms or use your exes or whatever, though it's probably like ill-advised. What I mean is like, if you want to share a song that you really like publicly, do you have to link it to the, the, the service you actually use? Do you need to share it directly from Spotify or can you find it somewhere else? If you're really excited and you really feel like you need to share, how can you do this while protecting your own OPSEC? Um, if you do want to share a song or video, it's like find a public link. Find something that doesn't show you're using premium.spotify.com. Um, and then use token-based multi-factor authentication. Use Duo, use Authy, use Google Authenticator. Try and avoid the SMS and call-based um, two-factor wherever you possibly can. And then most importantly, because that's not always possible, make sure you call, especially your telecom and your financial institutions, call them and have them put a passphrase or a verbal passphrase or a PIN number on your account. Try and make that PIN number at least six digits. And in theory, before any information is given over the phone, they will have to ask you for that exact passphrase or that exact PIN number. Um, this will prohibit things like uh, call forwarding, text message forwarding, um, and a lot of ways that SMS multi-factor authentication is like circumvented. Um, and also, like, please stay in touch. Um, I love making new friends. I really value friends, so feel free to come see me, say hi, let's chat. You can follow me on Twitter, at Kat Murdoch, that O is a zero. Um, and then email cat.murdoch, O is still a zero, at protonmail.com. Um, I'd love to hear from any of you, and then we hopefully have a few minutes for questions. Um, so if anybody has any questions about the presentation, other bits of curiosity, I am all yours, so just let me know. Plenty of time for questions, yeah. and please walk up to the human microphone stand. If you have mobility issues, I will bring the mic to you. Come on up, join the party. Hi, super big fan, by the way. <laughs> hey, girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my question for you is, 
when it comes to like knowing the questions that they're going to ask, do you just kind of wait to see if they ask it? If you don't have that piece of information, you're like, oh, okay, like note that for later and try and come back and get it. Or like, how do you find out all the questions that they're going to ask so that you can kind of decide your path to like gaining all that information? Yeah, that's a great question. So oftentimes, if it's for a client and you're doing it routinely, or if you're an attacker and you have all the time in the world, you'll call and you'll ha you'll see what questions they're asking. I typically, personally, like combat a lot of nerves when I do phone pretexting calls or pen tests or whatever by finding way too much information. <laughs> so I try and equip myself with all the information I can possibly find online. Sometimes you don't have that luxury, but yes, I will keep calling until I build out that, like, okay, what questions am I going to get? How can I find the answers to these questions? And then can I call back enough times to at least, because generally they'll have a bank. When I did policy review and had more insight into how it actually worked, usually they have a bank of a handful of questions and they're going to ask you some, as the woman said, like some number of those questions. Um, and so my hope is always to kind of be able to find like 60 to 70% of the answers because then the odds are in my favor. Um, and yeah, sometimes you don't have that luxury and you have to like kind of like BS your way through it. I, uh, we recently had to, I had to reset a password and we had absolutely no indication of like what the questions would be, but we knew there would be questions. It turned into a 30 minute call and they wound up asking me like who my manager was, but the person I was impersonating was new and like this is not directly related but very much like how you find out these questions. Um, so I knew the person was new and I called and I just pretended they were like, oh, well, what day did you start? And I was like, well, I signed my contract like four months ago, but I started really recently. So I don't really know what it would be there. And they're like, oh, actually it's not here. Like apparently because you are new, like things got messed up. And I was like, cool, yeah, it must be the case. And um, <laughs> then they kept asking, like the next one was, oh, can you tell me your employee ID number? And I was like, well, as I said, I'm like in a Starbucks, just met like a potential new hire, like I don't have that memorized, like what else can we do? And they put me on hold like a number of times. I was like, surely I'm burnt. And they'd come back <laughs> with another question and it got to the point where they're like, well, who's your manager? And I named someone else in HR that I'd seen online and they're like, well, that's not your direct manager. And I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> and I was like, well, what about this person who's like this, the like head of it all? They're like, no, you poor dumb thing. And I was like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and so they went so far as to call my manager and pull him on the phone and asked him to verify my voice to which he said, yeah, that sounds like her. And I was like, what? <laughs> so a lot of it is perseverance because I would be lying if I said during one of the like seven moments he put me on hold I didn't want to hang up real bad because I was just like there's no way this is gonna work and then at the end we like pulled it out and he gave me this passphrase I reset the password and we got in I was like that took 30 minutes I cannot believe it worked um so it really comes back to like that tenacity and you do call and you make sure that like you know what as many of the questions as you possibly can and maybe you'll look out and it'll be the ones you know off the top of your head I did try for the sake of this like be really authentic and I didn't like I only used information that I had called and obtained or I know you could value find online it was an interesting it was an interesting experiment <laughs> oh. great thank you uh, so just to flip this around a bit have you had any experiences where you called a call center and it was effective security so something that they did maybe an OTP via SMS I don't know um, or something like that where you thought hey that's that's pretty secure maybe I'll move my money here yeah, absolutely. I mean, some some institutions have really robust security questions, um, and that can like like you're just not going to find them online. 
And some people are super well trained and you will have them say like, we are instructed to not give the account number over the phone because that is typically what they're not supposed to do. But you know, maybe you're a new mom and you called somebody who was once a new mom and so now she's like, oh, your baby's crying. Like I know this pain and it's, it's like a little bit terrible feeling to like prey on those emotional times. But like in those moments, if there is not something as binary as I cannot access the information on the account until you give me this, in, until you tell me this password phrase or pin number, um, that is a really effective way. But honestly, the effective security aspect tends to be removing the information from the teller until they get proper authentication. Like, don't let their emotions be manipulated or influenced. Um, so on, on the screen, the most effective thing I've seen is like, I cannot see your information until you give me this one answer. Because if they can see it, then now they have a choice as to whether or not they reveal it. So if you have like a pop-up that says, here's the question and you must put the answer in before the teller or, who, or the call, the person who received the call, uh, just, they just literally cannot see anything until you get the one or whatever very secure question correct. And that is the most effective security I have seen like repeatedly. Just to follow up, that's primarily a, right? That's what? That's primarily knowledge-based questions and answers. But have you seen anything technical like an Authy push notification or Google Authenticator OTP in your experience? From my perspective, specifically with financial institutions or, or telecom companies, I have not seen that on like the person-to-person -person level. Um, like, with, I haven't even seen it on the corporate accounts, quite frankly. But I'm not saying it couldn't exist or hasn't been implemented some places since I tested them, or maybe it's a place I've never tested. But in my experience, I have not found anything that is that technically advanced um, to protect you, like end-user accounts. Sadly, it's a great idea. <laughs> I'd love to see it be a thing. <laughs> Hi, great yeah. talk. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. Um, I guess I have a follow-up kind of that as well as the original question, which is that a lot of those like OTP token-based authentication systems, I would think you'd run into a situation where, like for example, my phone, you know, it got erased for some reason and now it basically collapses into the same yeah. threat model as before where now I can basically get them to remove that second factor from my account. So I, that'd be a scenario I'd be worried about. But one of my, my, my original question was, uh, is there a kind of a breach boundary style approach that you would recommend? Like, you know, you mentioned before having burner emails. Um, one thing that came to mind when I was listening to your talk was like, oh, if I just used uh, different credit cards for different types yeah. of services where, oh, maybe they can go and figure out like how to compromise my whatever card, but not my other, not my debit card, for example. Like, is there a, an approach that you would recommend? Um, so first off, gonna give like Michael Basil a plug. He just released his new book that is like how to be invisible in America, um, like a guide to privacy. And if you really want like expert level privacy tips, go read his stuff because he is truly amazing and also maybe like a bit extreme and extra, but like power to him because yes, you absolutely could. You can also go and, you know, you can withdraw cash and go and buy the prepaid credit cards and buy them for a year and use that for Netflix. So like Netflix will not be able to leak information about you. Uh, you can use Proton Mail. You can actually like create and spin up like a fake Gmail account because they're like usually you're supposed to have another email address and or a phone number to start up a Gmail account. Um, but if you can put in your phone number and then later remove it in settings. Um, and so then you have like a semi-disconnected Gmail account that is immediately like 
service providers are typically like, oh, it's a Gmail. That's pretty, like, that's pretty legit because they have all these precautions in place. Um, so you can do that, like absolutely, you can obfuscate it, you can put your house in a trust so the mortgage is paid, um, not in your name, and that's not a way to find out your address. So there are tons of like little ways that you can absolutely improve your personal privacy and your personal privacy posture. Um, you can make, um, you know, like, even do like a 33 mail email, which will allow you to put like infinite subdomains at the start of like username at subdomain.33mail.com. Um, like all these could like, I'm, this casual advice could still be linked back to your identity, but it would keep your, you know, crown jewels and your finances secure. Um, and so that would be, if you really want to go to that level, I would say like, go get cash, get your, you know, Amex points from like a little Amex card from Kroger or wherever you shop for groceries, and then you can be like, all right, I'm gonna put 10 times 12 like dollars on this, so I have the exact amount I need for a year, and then I'm gonna set a, an alert on my on my phone to make sure that I like re-up to a different credit card at the year mark or whatever you would have. So there are absolutely ways you can get around it, and there are definitely ways that you can like increase your security. It also comes down to like back to the end users having choice. How much time do you want to put into it? Like, where is your baseline risk? Also, like, if you use, if instead of using your debit card, like, I'm not endorsing anybody go out and get a credit card to rack up a credit balance, but the, uh, credit cards like American Express will often, like, they don't, they, they will protect, you know, your information slightly better. They will generally, like, give you your money back if something bad happens to your money because of one of these things. Um, and so, I, you know, I appreciate the vendors who are like, yeah, crap happens. Like, I'm going to help you not feel the negative effects of this quite as much. Oh. Yeah. They'll never hear you on the recording. Oh, no problem. Does the recurring payment on a prepaid card work? I was under the impression that that like they check against that now. On a phone or an account? I was talking more for like the service accounts. No, like if you were to go to the supermarket, get like a prepaid Amex, like could you buy Netflix with that? I thought like they don't like that because it's used for like money laundering or something. Um, potentially, I'm, I, I cannot currently speak to like every single person, like every provider's policies on yeah. what types of cards they will or will not accept. Oh, okay. But like also these subscription services also have their own gift cards that you can also buy with cash. True, true. So yeah. like if they say, boo hiss, I don't like this card because the digits say it's temporary, um, then just be like, all right, well, instead I bought this Netflix gift card with cash, loophole. So yeah, absolutely. And I mean, sometimes okay. people will not, like sometimes uh, fields won't like certain email addresses because they feel shady or like with Gmail, you can put a plus sign at the end of your username and have like limitless usernames. But some vendors are like, oh, I don't like this because I know that you can make like limitless usernames. So you definitely have to stay on top of what specific vendors requirements are and they do constantly change. Um, I even like with my gym, I did the plus thing on an email address and now they have put up a precaution that says like, oh, you can't use the plus sign rule. And so now I can't reset my password at my gym because it says that it's not a valid email address. And I was like, oh, this is a weird loophole I've gotten myself into. So yes, <laughs> there are moments where it's like non-ideal and you have to continuously, like if this is a commitment you want, if this is, if you, depending on how secret, secret squirrel you want to go, um, it does take a bit of work and a bit of maintenance, but to not lose, you know, 
all the money in one account or making sure you keep that money in separate accounts if you lose a little bit. Like there are multiple strategies for how to keep yourself safe, but I recommend investing a little bit of time in those things instead of relying on the vendors to do it for me because that clearly has a lot of, a lot of areas for improvement and their privacy policies and how they interact with one another. All right. Done? Thank you so very much. Thank you Great guys talk. so much for coming out. I really appreciate you all. Uh, with that said, let's get on with the second talk from the DEF CON 27 Crypto and Privacy Village. This is Christian Pequin migrating to quantum safe crypto. All right, everybody. Thanks for being here. We're going to kick off our Next talk with speaker Christian Paquin, and he'll be covering migrating to quantum safe crypto to protect against the quantum hacker. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm very happy to be back this year to discuss our progress uh, towards uh, migrating to post quantum cryptography. Um, the work I, I'm presenting today is in collaboration with a lot of people, uh, some uh, in my team at Microsoft Research, also with some other organizations. But uh, for this particular uh, work, uh, it's mainly been done with uh, Douglas Sibylla at University of Waterloo. So I don't know if you remember, or some of you might not have been born uh, 20 years ago when South Park introduced these very... Uh, weird characters, the little gnomes, and they went around and they had a plan to make money, a, a kind of a interesting business plan. They would go around, steal people's underpants, and then with some unknown way, they would try to make a profit. I'll get back to these guys later. But on an unrelated note, also something that happened 20 years ago is that I started to study quantum computing. Uh, in my graduate studies at the University of Montreal. Um, it was a fascinating subject and I uh, kind of abandoned it, came back to it a few years ago, this time not trying to use quantum computing, but trying to defend against it. Because I'm sure we've, you all know that, was that not on before? Okay, so I, I'm sure you all know that Quantum computers, although they would be fantastic for the field of algorithmics, you can solve a lot of problems more efficiently. For the world of cryptography, it's really bad news because um, a quantum computer would break due to Shor's algorithm. Uh, it would break RSA and DSA elliptic and uh, ECDH and all the elliptic curve variants, essentially, because it can solve the underlying mathematical problems on which these uh, schemes are based. Namely, they can factor and find a discrete log of numbers very efficiently in polynomial time. What does that mean? It means that a quantum computer would break all the public key crypto we use today. And by what I mean is that it would break HTTPS, TLS, it would break SSH, it would break peer-to-peer -peer communication uh, messaging systems like uh, Signal, break certificates, uh, software update channels, and bitcoins. If you, somebody has a computer, it could steal all the bitcoins. Uh, there's another algorithm that's important in quantum computing. It's called um, the Groover's algorithm. It affects uh, hash functions and symmetric primitives like AES, 
but that's not a big problem. We can just double the, the key sizes, the hash sizes, and, and we're fine. So sure is really the main problem here. And there, there's a wide spectrum of, um, of uh, estimates of when a quantum computer will be built. Some people say it will never be built. Some people say it's going to be done in five years. But there's a wide consensus in, 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 in academia and experts that say a, a specialized quantum computer could be built within a decade or two to break um, RSA. So that means that we need to start thinking about migrating to quantum-safe cryptography. So quantum-safe cryptography or post-quantum crypto is not cryptography that runs on a quantum computer. It's a, it's a type of, of algorithm, uh, schemes, algorithmic schemes, cryptographic schemes that run on normal computers, but for which we know no way to break them with quantum computers. So I get asked often, like, why do we care now? Why don't you just tell me a year before the quantum computer is going to be built, and then we're going to scramble and rush to, to fix everything like we did for Y2K? a year before, and that's a valid argument. The problem is that the data we encrypt today uh, on the web is at risk. It is at risk of being captured now, stored for a couple of years, and then decrypted. So if you're sending important data, trade secrets, or if you're a whistleblower and sending confidential information, then if th this data can be decrypted in 10 years and ruin your life, then you need to start protecting it differently today. Another problem is that once we're ready to transition, it's going to take a long time to change the standards. The TLS, SSH, all these things will take years to update, and consequently also will, it will take some time to update the software stack, all the, the code. There's this notion of crypto agility to, to program your, your software to be able to replace algorithms. We've done that many times, replacing MD5 with SHA-1, SHA-1 with SHA-2, 256. So we're used to that, but there you'll be surprised how many places RSA is just art coded in some code bases. So it might be hard to transition some software stacks. And also these new algorithms, they don't necessarily uh, function like the old ones. Some of them have huge keys, they run slower, so it might have a, a critical impact on some software. Bottom line, if you have data that needs to be secured in 10 years, take all these steps backwards, we kind of need to do that today. We're back to these guys now. So now they have a new idea how to make money. They don't need to collect underpants anymore. They can simply collect ciphertext, wait a few years, and then they can turn out a profit when they have access to a quantum computer. Fortunately, on the crypto side, uh, we're on top of things. So NIST, the National Institutes of Standard and Technologies, they started this, uh, this effort to uh, provide new standards to replace RSA and, the, and ECDH and all these, these things. They started in 2017. They, got, they, they, they asked the community to, uh, to, provide, to propose new schemes. There were 69 uh, accepted schemes that were submitted. Uh, and uh, in January of this year, they started round two. So Thanos happened and a bunch of these just got uh, snapped away. And then some more got merged together because they were very similar. And now we're left in uh, right here with 26 schemes. And uh, we're two weeks away from a workshop 
organized by NIST, where the submitters will discuss these run to candidates, what updates they did in the second round. And if all goes well, then within three to five years, NIST is going to publish some new standards. So it's coming up fairly, fairly soon. So our goal is to experiment with these new schemes and see what's the impact on our, the software we use today. So it was, this project was started by the University of Waterloo and we, we joined among with other many collaborators uh, to create a framework in which you can integrate your new crypto schemes and in turn we can take these and integrate them in higher level software. So the Open Quantum Safe project is an open source project. It's available at this uh, URL. Our goal is to integrate all the round two schemes where we're on the way of doing that. And um, we also have integrations into OpenSSL, OpenSSH, and also OpenVPN, which allow you to try and deploy these things, uh, experimenting with post-quantum cryptography. What's new, uh, what we did in the, the, this year, is we kind of completed the roadmap of all the use cases. So we can do full post-quantum and also the hybrid case, classical plus post-quantum, in both the key exchange and the authentication, the signature part, for both TLS 1.3 and SSH. We also have 1.2 support. I'll talk about it in a second, but it's not as complete. And we also implemented wrappers, uh, so you can use the library from C++, C Sharp, or Python. So using uh, this uh, framework, we, we did some case studies and analysis of um, different ways you can plug in these algorithms uh, in our target protocols, SSH and TLS. So we just released a paper describing this. Um, it's going to be presented at the NIST workshop in more details. Um, and we also have a, an extra collaborator on the, on the paper, Eric Crockett from Amazon, who, who provides also some insight from their S2N uh, SSL integ integration. And I will present a, a few results from, uh, from this analysis. Um, to give you an idea of, of what uh, is entailed when you try to migrate to post-quantum cryptography. So first, I mentioned this before, but we, we support what we call hybrid uh, deployments. So uh, hybrid means that, uh, so if you take a post-quantum algorithm, you don't want to transition to it right away. You don't want to dump RSA and start using a like picnic signature because these are fairly recent, RSA as, as a, as it's been there since 76. It's been a lot of cryptanalysis done on it. So we don't know. These post-quantum algorithms may be broken in five years, not even by a quantum uh, computer, but maybe by a classical computer. Maybe there's a flaw in the algorithm that we haven't seen. So um, how to achieve um, more safety is to combine a classical algorithm with a post-quantum one. So you take, let's say, uh, ECDH, and you combine it with a, with a psych algorithm, and then you create a new one. And uh, the resulting communication will be secure if any of the two is secure. So if there are no quantum computers, then you're safe, you have your elliptic curve uh, defilement. And if there is a quantum computer, then your communication will still be secure because uh, you would have protected with a post-quantum one. So. TLS, SSH, they already have this, this notion of negotiating an algorithm. The client sends its support list and the server responds, they negotiate which algorithm they'll pick. 
but we don't have a way to pick two algorithms at the same time and combine them. So that's where we have to work. And there, there are multiple ways to do that that we, we list in the paper. Uh, the simplest one is just to create a new scheme. It's like you know PNJ uh, sandwich, you know peanut butter and jelly, and just combine. It's the new thing. It's, it's PNJ. So the same thing. We can take a classical algorithm, a post quantum one, combine them, and that's a new thing. The great thing is that this is backward compatible. So when you say I support these these algorithms, you just name the new one, which is a combination of both. And if the other peer supports it, you can have this secure uh, this this exchange that provides extra security. And there are a bunch of more advanced ways to negotiate the two algorithms separately. And um, they're a bit more complicated. They require protocol changes and, and might affect uh, a few items. And the things that you need to, keep, to take to care about when you design these is, OK, how is it going to affect backward compatibility, performance? Because for example, in TLS 1.3, when uh, the client sends uh, its first message to request communication, it has the ability to pre-compute some data. So assuming you're going to pick ECDH, here's a pre-computation for this exchange. But if I'm going to send three proposals and I have to compute pre-calculations for each, I'm consuming data, the data is bigger. So we don't want to introduce too much, uh, much more uh, problems or, or more data, uh, increase the bandwidth requirements, uh, and we don't want to add communication messages and, and, uh, and affect the data flow too much. So these are all things that we take in considerations. The first thing we've implemented and the one that we, that we use for our experiments is, is the first one I mentioned, the combo scheme, because it is the simplest to implement minimal changes in OpenSSL and OpenSSH, and also uh, doesn't affect backward compatibility. So it, it's user all around. Um, so for the TLS uh, use cases that, that we consider, we have s did some work in TLS 1.2, the more recent work in TLS 1.3. Uh, the Bayes protocol does not support, it only supports elliptic curve type exchanges, ECDH. Um, RSA is not even there anymore. So we have to masquerade our, our algorithms as, as uh, curves. So we pretend to be an elliptic curve, uh, curve and then um, we, we can run, so we don't have to modify the stack. And um, one, one problem is the size of these things. As I mentioned, some schemes have very large public keys or very large encryption systems or signatures, and this, the protocol specifies a maximum size, in this case, uh, two, six, 2 to the 16 uh, bytes for, uh, for public key and 2 to the 24 for certificates, for example. And some schemes uh, are bigger than that, so they wouldn't fit. But also OpenSSL has uh, smaller limits because RSA is not that big, that's the main thing that's used, so they don't want to provide this empty buffer where people could dust them, so they reduce this limit. So at some places we had to tweak, uh, remove uh, some of these limits in OpenSSL to be able to run our experiments. OpenSSH is uh, kind of similar, but uh, it has a bigger limit, it's 2 to the 32, so all the all the proposed round two schemes would fit there um, in theory. OpenSSH also has its internal limits that we had to tweak to, to fit our algorithms at some places. And um, in this case, we support both the client and server public key authentication. So it's kind of a full coverage of, the, of what we want to, to achieve here. Uh, just as a summary of uh, what we tried, 
is a table that shows for the key encapsulation, so the key exchange. Um, so as I mentioned at the beginning of the OQS slide, there were some algorithms that are in there, some that are not, and there's no particular reason to why schemes are excluded other than the fact that people involved in the project contribute their own schemes and the other ones we're trying to, to fill them uh, by taking implementations that we can find uh, by the submitters. So at some point we hope to have all the NIST candidates in that table. Um, the little yellow uh, check mark here, for example, Frodo as a, as a <coughs> larger artifacts that we needed to, to tweak OpenSSL internal limits to be able to fit in there. Uh, NTS, uh, sorry, NTS, which is a code-based scheme here, like a bit like McLeese uh, also is a, a similar, um, is a similar scheme, which had very large uh, public keys, and we could not, uh, we're not able to fit them in, in the software. That they, we, we had problem, and the spec in theory would support that size, but we were not able to make it work. So uh, it's a good reason to try these experiments in practice, because even in theory, you say the size should fit, uh, there's some resulting, there's a lot of, of uh, code paths in the, in the software that did, didn't work. For the signatures, uh, we have a lot more of these yellow boxes, meaning that we needed to uh, augment the internal size in OpenSSL and OpenSSH to fit these large signatures or public keys. And um, we only had two failures, picnic level three and five were expected because the uh, the signature size were bigger than what the, what's allowed by the, the protocol. Uh, the round two version of Picnic all fits, so they reduced, uh, they did some optimization that uh, allow Picnic 2 to be used in, in TLS. And on, on the SSH side, we had some failures with the rainbow, uh, some more uh, higher level parameter sets. So now, uh, I'd like just to show you a quick demo of SSH. Um, so, if you know and use, if you know SSH, then that's going to look, it should look exactly as how you're used to see it. So, the only thing we did is add these post-quantum algorithms and um, nothing is different. If you've never seen an SSH connection, that's just going to look a little bit weird. Sorry for the, the unreadability of that, of these consoles. But what I'm starting on the right-hand side is a server. It's expecting a, uh, a ECDHT with the NIST curve P384 combined with a, a psych algorithm. There it is. And uh, on the left-hand side, it's going to be a client requesting the same algorithm. And... Uh, I've put the debug output there, so it's to show that it, to show something on the screen. Otherwise, it would just be nothing. And uh, we see the connection was uh, successful. The exchange here, the authentication was done with the picnic uh, hybrid, the uh, picnic signature, and uh, also a ECDSA. So the point I'm trying to make here is that we modified these 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 software stacks, but they work exactly as you did before. Uh, they did before. If you if you deployed SSH bef before, uh, one step that I skipped was the creation generation of the key pair and added it to the authorized set on the server side. So it works exactly the same, which means that you can basically go out and and try it and uh, deploy it even. So what's next for us is uh, what, what we want to 
add more of the round two schemes, the one we're missing, so we can have a, a, a full list of, uh, of all the algorithms. And we want to do some performance testing. We did some tests with the, a year ago with round one candidates, and it was very promising. The fast lattice schemes, for example, were competitive and sometimes even faster than state-of-the-art ECDH. And uh, some slower one, uh, which might not be suitable for, you know, multiple connections a second, like on an SSL server, could be great for kind of more one-on-one -on -one interactions either in a messaging system or SSH. So you really have a broad choice of deployment options uh, if you're a system integrator. And we also want to tackle more protocols. There, there's all sorts of things that needs to be uh, made quantum safe. We want to start looking uh, into that. And for you, an interesting thing to consider is, are you working with projects or with software that, that protects data, that needs to be secure for, for a couple of years, for 10 years? And if so, you might want to be able to, you might want to start using uh, post-quantum cryptography to protect this data, either integrating in your code or using some of our forks and deploy them, SSH or VPN. All right, so that's my time. Thank you for your attention. I'll be posting the slides uh, right after the talk, and I'm happy to take some questions. Thank you. All right, thank you. <laughs> if you have questions, please come up to the human microphone. That is me. Come on down. Can you come up and... Thanks. Form an orderly line. My question was just, um, obviously, I haven't looked at the GitHub repo yet, but did you use the OpenSSL module API to build your um, provider, or did you hack OpenSSL to extend it? Yeah, the, the, the engine API you're talking about? Yeah, engine. Yeah, okay. So, no, we didn't. Uh, so, the engine API is, a, in OpenSSL, there's a way to provide an alternate implementation uh, so if you have RSA and you implement RSA in hardware, you can create an engine to plug it in. So since these were new algorithms unknown to OpenSSL, we add to, uh, to modify OpenSSL itself. And there's OpenSSL is in two layers, the crypto layer and then the SSL layer. The crypto layer, you could maybe get away with using the engine, but in the SSL layer, where you define specs uh, or specifications for the actual algorithms, that didn't work. So we modified the, the code directly. We have a fork. You can see the diff between the original project and, and the... Um, I just have a question. I don't know. I mean, obviously, you're aware that uh, IBM has actually created the Q1 system, correct? Because I was at CES in January, and they, that's where they showcased it. And I don't know if you know anything about it, but knowing what it is, it's a legit... How do you think that's going to help your field of migrating regular, like what you were talking about, how do you think that the creation of the IBM 1Q system will help? Maybe not you, but like whenever they streamline it more, uh, how do you think the creation of the IBM Q1 system is going to help you and the people that come after you in this particular? Yeah. So, yeah, so there's a lot of vendors that, that have, uh, you know, work on quantum computing and provide specialized chips. A lot of what's out today, the D-Wave system and, and some others, they're very specialized and they're not general computers to do all not these yet. things. So the, the estimates I gave at the beginning, 10, 15 years, uh, it's the output of, of very serious 
uh, quantum computer experts that took everything in consideration, uh, research, time, uh, money invested, then they give a, like a 50% chance to, to have something in 10, 15 years, including all this development. That's all, that's, none of these is surprise work. We see the scaling of quantum computer and we have to plan that pessimistically, if you're trying to defend against it, then our mark is like 10, 15 years. I mean, I just wanted to get your opinion on how you think, even though it might not be the Q1 system itself that helps you, like the later iterations of uh, quantum computing. Do you think that will just streamline the migration from regular to uh, PQC? Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's like all, all this stuff, the migration doesn't use quantum computers at all, right? We're just like, if they, they exist, they threaten what's in today and you need to migrate to this stuff. So what's going to trigger this is NIST is going to do their, they're going to have new standards and then the protocols will update. And what we're trying to kind of kickstart is you might want to migrate before all that takes place because that could be, you know, five, seven years and all the data that you encrypt today until then is at risk to be decrypted later. So if you want to migrate to something, a hybrid scheme, then that you have the tools to do that today. Okay. Expecting that one of these systems, D-Wave, IBM, Microsoft is working on them, Google, everybody has a quantum computing team, that somebody will have a functioning one in you know, 10, 15 years. Thank you. Hi, um, does any of the algorithm being evaluated Bodes any potential application in an IoT environment where bandwidth, computational power, and latency are critical issues? Yes, so, so there's a lot of different flavors of algorithms. Uh, some are very big, very small, very slow, very fast, and some of them that might not be competitive in, in, um, in speed with some other like fast lattice one, they will they will give them advantages to themselves saying that, oh, we have very short keys, we fit in very small embedded systems. So this is the selling point to, to some of these. And NIST said that they won't pick a winner, they'll, they're more likely to pick a, a bunch of them for different use cases, including uh, IoT, which is a very important uh, scenario. That's all the time we have for questions, but hopefully he can be available afterwards outside. Yes, uh, I can stay here. All right, one more round of applause for our speaker. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, hopefully you got uh, something out of that talk as well. Uh, you know, as, as always, I enjoy sharing these talks with you. Uh, you know, because I think these are things that uh, we should all sort of pay attention to. Not, you know, if not now, somewhere in the future, or just keep, you know, keep these sort of things in the back of your mind. I guess uh, it's, you know, it's hard to tell, but whatever. I enjoy, I enjoy bringing this stuff to you. You know, you know, I do, right? So, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, so here we are. We've made it to the sunshine. Uh, all that jazz, right? Uh, and with that said, please uh, feel free to check out the website at hackers.xxx. Uh, also, be sure to feel free to drop us an email or just say hi if that's what you want to do. Uh, check us out on your favorite streaming platforms as well. And yada, 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 you know what to do. Uh, go to the website, hackers.xxx. Uh, click on the show link. And you can download or stream the shows there as well. You can get them first there as well. Hint, hint. And uh, with that said, uh, I'm going to cut out of here. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I'm actually going to go back to sleep. <laughs>
wait for the sun to rise. And with that, with that uh, said, though, please uh, feel free to uh, enjoy yourself. Uh, you know, you've got some more holidays coming up here, uh, if that's what you celebrate at the end of the year. Uh, and also, we have the CCC coming up at the end of December as well. So I'm unsure if I'm going to actually do the show there or what i don't know we'll figure that out uh nevertheless i'm out of here i'm going to get out of here and go back to sleep as i said uh thanks for tuning into the show please please try to smile at someone today and tell someone that you care for them or try to care for someone in a special way or the way that you find special and remember to please use your skills for something good don't be a dingling and take care of yourself, okay? Uh, until next week, please do take care of yourself. And I'll talk to you then, all right? Talk to you later. Bye.